Hamiyawi. This time to spend time with you to share your truth, your knowledge and wisdom, Father God, to be that conduit to anyone willing to give time, hear the words, but listen to the message delivered to them, Father God, given to me to be able to share this, Father, to be about your business, to give them the opportunity. It's what you've called me for, Father. That's what I do. So, some things to share with you, and um, you might want to cinch up your seatbelt, hang on, keep all hands and feet inside the moving car, and do not stand up at any time during this ride. For your safety. So, we're going to be going, we're not going to travel around so much, we're just going to stay <clears throat> pretty much around Jerusalem and in the word, but there's some very specific things that I need to share. And one of my favorite mentors shared a couple things that, uh, and pointed these out. And it's very, so relevant to this day, but we're going to have to go back also. Um, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we're going to see where this came. And we're also going to take a notation of, of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and committing to them the truth. And of course, we all know what their attitude was about the truth. They didn't want to hear it. So we're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to find where... Eve is wandering in the garden. And I'm just saying that. I don't know. And there's, I'm not sure what she was doing. But she was in the garden. And we have the serpent. And the serpent came and beguiled Eve. And as it, as the scripture shares with us in chapter three, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. So Satan came in in the guise of a serpent and more subtle, more cut. He was sneakier and easier. And he came and he beguiled Eve. And he beguiled her with deception. And beguiled has several definitions, but it's all relative. To influence by trickery, flattery, mislead or delude. To take away by cheating or deceiving. To charm or divert. Satan did all of these things to Eve. He beguiled her first with his charm and his feigned demeanor of being so 
um, I don't want to say gentleman, gentlemanly behavior, but essentially that's what he was doing. He was charming her and lying to her, totally deceiving her. And what did he do? He got her to believe and Satan diverted her attention away from the truth and got her to question God's directives, God's character, God's truth, and everything that he did and presented was a lie. He told her that God was keeping from them things that were better or he didn't want them to have. They questioned these things. They questioned God's motives. They questioned God's intent. They questioned God's truth. They questioned God's sovereignty. The tree of the fruit of good and evil that was planted in the center of the garden. But nothing was brought up about everything else that God provided for their needs. They needed nothing because God provided it for them. Every tree that bore fruit Every plant that bore seed that would plant, that would replant and regenerate itself. And he gave them authority over all of this. He said, All you got to do is walk around, pick and feed. You can name this, you can name that, and it's all yours. You don't need anything because I'll provide it. But yet the devil got them to got Eve primarily to question, and then she offered to her husband whatever their conversation was. It's not specific, but I can imagine she probably shared some of the deceit that the devil shared with her. But the devil got her to question. God didn't wasn't keeping anything from them. Nothing. He just told them. He said, "Okay." I got everything for you. Everything you will ever need is provided for you. And I'll make sure that it's always there. Just that tree that grows in the center of the garden. Just don't touch that fruit. Don't touch that fruit. So as a sovereign Lord and King... It should always be, it should, and I use that, and we'll get down to the brass tacks here in a minute. It should always be that God is sovereign, he is king, he is Lord, and it's up to him. However, we quite readily decide that we're going to decide who we're going to forgive, and when we're going to forgive, and how we're going to forgive, and we should be this, and we should be that, and we shouldn't be doing it. Why am I not doing that? And we start this comparison thing. But where does it start? It starts with questions. It starts in the mind. And here's something that some of you may not like, and that's too bad. I don't care. It's truth. So I'm going to share And I've also shared this before with you. There's a thing that we had in the military, which was quite commonly used. It actually started quite a long time ago, but became a regular 
issue and was something they had actually had a division within the military and it was called PSYOPs, Psychological Warfare. And you might wonder, well, what, what's the significance of that? What's that got to do? Just bear with me. You'll get it. I've shared this with you before. The mind is very powerful. It's also very weak. Satan knows that there is power in the mind, but he also knows that it's his weakest point of attack and he will get in there and he will stir things up. Oh yes. So you had, I've also shared this with you. It doesn't matter what you think your intellectual prowess might be. It doesn't matter how smart you think you are. It doesn't matter how, what kind of, uh, what's that group, uh, Mensa. You might be a member of Mensa. Your IQ, your intelligent quotient might be 190, could be 200, could be 210. You could be the most brilliant mind in the world. But you're quite possibly the weakest man or woman in existence. My point being that Jonathan Nash, who was a brilliant mind, who was reported to be a genius, I think, I can't recall what it is, his IQ was a one, 160, 180. It was, it was up there. It was top of the scales. <clears throat> However, he started to second guess. He started to he developed an issue, and not quite certain why, but maybe because he was in these formulations too deeply for whatever reason, but he started to have these delusions. He saw things that weren't there. He saw, he was claiming to, to be solving these uh, codes that were found in newspapers and various other things, and he got agencies in the government to believe him until they found out that he was seeing things. And he was actually diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And he was a professor. Was just short of being receiving accreditation for a full-fledged, um, oh, I forget what the word is, but they were going to sign him on full as a professor at the university. I think they call it tenure. At any rate, they began to question this because of his mental issues. You have Sir Isaac Newton lost a formulation because he second-guessed and somebody came to the conclusion who was working on the same formulation and they got the answer first because they didn't second guess. They didn't doubt themselves. And a man who is credited to be the most genius mind in the world, Einstein, used to second guess himself all the time. 
he doubted himself. So back to the Garden of Eden we go. The subtlety of the serpent was getting into Eve's mind and getting her to second guess the authority of God, to question his character, to question his faithfulness, to question his sovereignty. And so she bit. Not only the lies, but she bit the fruit. And then she got Adam to bite. And he did. And they were kicked out of Eden. But this is because Satan used that. And he beguiled them by trickery, flattery, misleading, deluding them, showing them something that wasn't there, that wasn't real, and take away, took it away from them by cheating or deceiving them. Charmed them, diverted them. And he does the same thing now. I actually see this in those that claim to be true believers, label heads, and self-proclaim. I see it. It's pretty blatant and obvious. They don't want to hear about Satan or be told that Satan is as wily and cunning and is powerful and his deceptiveness. Oh, let's not do that. That just focuses on the devil. We're here to have a good time and we're here to yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yay, yay, yay. Let's let's tap our fingers together and be happy, happy, joy, joy. But they don't want it in discussing anything about God or the scripture. They don't want to hear it. They only want to hear that good thing. They only want to hear all the good stuff. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know how to tell you this. Yeah, I do. Tell you straight up and straight truth that foolishness is expounded on by those that thrive in it. Now, they might be some pretty good individuals out and around moving the world, but when it comes to their belief in God and the Christianity, oh my goodness, they are about as foolish as you can get. They may as well have on a big clown suit or a big clown hat. Because they don't want to hear the truth. They're, they've been deceived already. And they're so bound up in it. And as long as everything goes along. And everything goes the way that they want. And nobody's bothering them. They don't want to hear anything else. Because then it gets them to. Maybe question what they're doing. Or what they're about. And maybe see it for what it really is. So it saddens me. So what do we do? You don't confront them. You don't argue with them. You pray for them. Prayer is always the answer in everything, in everything. And in my readings this morning, it shared with us, and we can find this in uh, Romans 12, 
twelve fifteen. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And what has that got to do with the foolishness? Well, you don't want to be like that. But what you do is you pray for them because, and quite honestly, my heart hurts because I know that they're being led astray. I know that they're not falling as they should be. So I pray. And I don't know what the confusion is that might be there. Uh, I know where it comes from and I know the causation. So I pray to them. I pray over them and I pray to God for their benefit because we are told that we are supposed to pray intercessory prayer. And that means on behalf of somebody else. And what we have to do, and if we're functioning the way that God calls us to and the way that we're told to, is that we can see each member of the body of Christ, each member, truthfully see these. You don't want to confront them. You don't want to be argumentative. But we pray and we comfort, we uplift and encourage one another. Every member of the body. So with these individuals, when they share those things, I just, I don't want to argue the point. So I close my mouth and I let them go ahead and go. Whatever I was sharing is done. And quite honestly, I notice that there's other brothers and sisters that are sitting there. They want to hear more. And then the puzzlement is that, why is this being done? So I share that with you because you need to be very cautious and be careful of individuals like that because they are being led astray. And this is part of the subtlety and the um, guile that Satan puts in. He gets you and he gets in by your mind, the weakest point of attack. And like I shared with you with the military, psyops. What they used to do is they used to promote uh, psychological warfare, and it had to do with things that were broadcast over loudspeakers continuously. They did it in Vietnam. They did it in World War II. The Japanese had a person that was, um, what was his name? Oh, Tokyo Rose. And they used to broadcast things, and they used to do it when they were in the Philippines. They would do it in Tangluck, and they would do it in the Filipino language. Um, they would do it in multiple languages, and they used to do it uh, to the American troops. And what they would do is they would get the troops to question what they were doing. And actually they had some with a very weak mindset. They surrendered. Absolutely surrendered. And they took it a point to a further degree when they would combine that with torture, physical torture. And then it got really bad. The psychological warfare that's put upon us by Satan, and it's very real. I, I'm not sharing, I'm not making things up with you folks. You just get over that right now. You get beyond that because I've already told you um, whether you choose to believe that it's your choice, but I'm not going to lie to you and make things up. The psychological warfare that's used by Satan is very, very, very real. John 10.10, 10, 
Christ Jesus explains this and shares this with us. We saw it there in the example in the garden with the the serpent when he beguiled Eve. Talked her into questioning God's motive and what God had actually provided and got her to question God's authority. Got her to question what God had told him when he told him to stay away from that tree. And what, what did Satan, what did Satan tell her? One of the very first things that he told her. Oh, Eve, come on, God. He's not gonna, you're not gonna die. You're not gonna die. He lied to her. He didn't speak to her spiritually. He spoke, he was speaking to her physically. But things were going to happen that were going to be so much more intense through their life because they did not obey. And Satan talked her into that. But something that we must remember always And even I will miss this sometimes and I'll walk by it, walking too quickly. In Mark 10, 27, it shares, and Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. All things are possible. We have to keep our mindset on that and picture that, believe that, and don't question it. Satan gets us to impugn that our relationship with God. He gets us to question it. He gets us to doubt it. And It is something that is given us of God. Jesus teaches us, and whether you may not like it or you do, it doesn't matter because it's a metaphor that was used by Christ and it's actually very relevant to us today. So when we go into John 10... Jesus teaches us of the good shepherd and the thief. And he tells us that we are sheep, metaphorically speaking, like it or not, it is applicable. Satan, a thief, not so metaphorically, because what Jesus shares about it is very real. And I've shared with you about the sheep and the shepherd, the relationship. I've actually known shepherds, related with them, and shared and spent time with them. And it's amazing to see that these men, they travel with their sheep, and they travel as a group, and then they separate and they go. And all the time that they have been doing that, they've never had an issue with sheep being lost or mixed up with another flock. The sheep truly know the shepherd's voice. That's the literal real animal. So what's the problem with Christ using that as a metaphor for us? I have got no problem with it, but there's people that really get agitated by a metaphor. 
metaphorically speaking, we should know our shepherd's voice. Christ Jesus is the good shepherd. And if he speaks to us and calls us, what's the problem? We should know his voice. We should heed his call. We should pay attention to him and not listen to the beguiling lies of the devil. I've got no problem with metaphorically being compared to a sheep. I got no problem with that at all. I like the fact that when I'm lying over here at rest and in the wee morning hours, I either get a call from the Holy Spirit or the Lord and he says, I've got something for you to share or I want to share with you or I want to have time with you. And I get up and I come over here. I, I've got no problem with that. I've got no problem with that. I like it actually. But here's the other thing that is not so metaphorical when he speaks about the thief and Satan. <clears throat> and we can find that in John 10.10. 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And further in verse 11, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. If you got a problem with that, then I'm sorry in my heart for you. But that is not so metaphorically speaking pertaining to the devil because he's a thief, he is a liar, and his purpose is to come in is perhaps not literally but to steal not literally kill us and, and the things but he does come to steal whatever it is that you will allow him and that's that in is the very needed this is what they call the brass tacks do you allow him to take what God has given to you? I have heard this comment made many times. Well, you didn't come to prayer meeting. What, what happened? Oh, I wasn't feeling the joy. The devil robbed me of my joy. No, he didn't. You gave it away. You let it go. Because what God gives, if you really have that joy that was given to you? How is the devil just gonna take it from you? He didn't, you gave it up. And that, brothers and sisters, whether you like it or not, is the truth, and it is truth. I'm not gonna get all worked up about that and not get all up there and all these things, but when you make comments like that, oh, The devil and his little minions, they just robbed me of my joy. No, you gave it away. You let it go. You weren't holding on to it and you weren't rebuking. You weren't working. Here's the point. <clears throat> Pardon me. Very important that you realize and the scriptures tell us this. The scriptures tell us, Christ has told us this, that we are in warfare. We are in a spiritual warfare for our very soul. And if you're not willing to fight against 
the enemy when he comes and you just, oh, oh, it's the devil. I don't, I, I, oh, and then you open your hands and you put your arms out and they take your joy and everything else that you're holding on to. And how are you going to sit there and say, oh, you robbed me of my joy? No, you gave it away. If you're not willing to fight for what God has given. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit will tell us what battle we have. Excuse me? I love when they're, <laughs> no, I don't actually, that's that's uh, being facetious. But uh, you have individuals that claim to be Christian that will will fall back on that. Oh, the Holy Spirit will tell us which battle to fight, and that's not really a battle that I want to fight. Oh, there you just had, you just equated one truth with another untruth. And how do you put the two together? You can't. You're bending it. And you're trying. You can't bend it. But that's what they do. Yes, the Holy Spirit will tell you. But we are told that we are in a spiritual warfare. And we at least have to try to defend. If you don't want to fight and go at it with the with the demons that, that are manipulated and led by the devil. And that's fine. And we shouldn't do that anyway. At least not on our own. But at least... Use your shield of faith and have on your breastplate of righteousness, your helmet of salvation to protect your mindset from those things that the devil comes and tries to put in there and be prepared in the gospel so that you can remember what Jesus did when coming and being tempted in the desert or in the wilderness, as they call it, but that's the desert outside the city, not within the protected walls. And Satan tried to come at him in using scripture against Christ, who is the word of God, who was with God. And remember John 1, 1. The word was with God, the word was in God and from God, and they were together from the beginning. And Satan came and tried to use the word against the word manifest in flesh. That didn't work out so good. Took three tries and Christ was able to Fort that with the specific word of God. He drew from the logos and he used rhema and the devil took off. He said, well, I'm done here. Time ago. Because the authority of Christ was too much for him. And then after Christ was crucified, where was one of the first stops that he made before coming and spending more time with us? Before going home. He went down and rested the keys of death from Satan. He didn't ask for him. He didn't ask permission. He walked in, he reached out, and he grabbed the keys and he took them from Satan. Satan might have tried to hold back, but the authority was too powerful and he had to let go. And Christ now holds the key. This is why there is no longer a fear for the shadow of death. There shouldn't be. There should be no fear. If you're a believer, a true believer, and a true Christian, there should be no fear of death. It is merely a shadow, and you are met, passed through, and you're home. And you have to remember and keep in mind you have to keep in mind that Satan tries to kill in your mind and your heart that which should be the most precious to you. If it's not your relationship with God through Christ, then there are corrective measures that need to be taken. 
if that's not the most precious thing to you. And this is why I tell you, it's very important that you take care when people try to suggest to you to go to a self-help guru. <sighs> because they're not teaching according to the scripture. They're not teaching truth. And it gets you to question in your mind. And this is, this are some of the subtle, these are some of the subtleties that Satan uses. Okay, he's not going to come out right out and do this thing. He convinces you that you don't want to hear about him because then you will know that he is a powerful enemy and he's a good tactician. So he gets the mindset in individuals, even within the church body. You don't want to hear about this. You only want to hear about the happy, happy, joy, joy. You don't want to read anything that talks about me. Because if you hear about me, then you're going to be resistant to me. And I don't like that. I like what I got in your mind right now. I can get in there and my minions can come in and we can we can play soccer in your attic. We have lots of room because you're not thinking about anything except what you want to think about. You're thinking about work. And then when you go to the Bible study and prayer meeting, you don't want to hear about me. So that's good. Don't listen about me. And whenever that guy brings it up again, you tell him that you don't want to hear about it because you just want to hear about all the happy things which is exactly what the individual does. They don't want to hear about the truth. They just want to be, hear about happy, happy, joy, joy. That's all they want to hear about. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I share plenty of it. But the truth is the truth. And the design and goal for the enemy is to get in your mindset and take from you that which you allow them to have. And the most precious thing should be the relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And if it's not, then you need to take corrective action. That means you need to pray. You need to be talking to God. You need to be asking guidance to the Holy Spirit. And you need to wake up. And I'm not talking about becoming part of the woke society. I'm talking about waking up and opening your eyes and not walking around in a sleep pace like so many people do. You need to get by that. And you have to remember that Satan's ultimate goal, his only goal, is to keep us from our true goal and our true self, and, and that's in heaven. And he will impugn the character of God, raise doubt in our minds, and get us to question We'll question he puts that thought in our minds and drive it so we will believe that it's our own. The Bible speaks of that, that the Holy Spirit comes, the devil comes, and there is a fight over our soul for our very existence. And something that I had... Uh, my mentor shared several points and I say to you, and, and it's very good actually. It's very good. And that we are we are on we are on track. And there's only one there's only one way that we get off track. Only one. The devil can't get us off physically and he can't do that. He can cause distraction. He gets his mindset and those things. But we are the only ones that can derail our train. 
We are the only ones that can get it off track. We try to blame the devil. We try to put the onus on other things and other people, but it's only us. We are the ones that allow it to happen. Just like we allow the thief to come in and we blame the devil and his minions. Oh, they took my joy. I just didn't feel like coming to church today. I didn't feel like coming to Bible study today. I didn't feel like praying today. I didn't feel like being in the word of God today. Well, that's because that mindset that they put in there and you believe that subtle impugnity that he put in there. You started to question things. And that is the sole purpose to get you to question God's sovereignty, to get you to question his character. What is the character of God? God is love. He is faithful. He is true. He is kind. He is compassionate. And then when certain things happen, then you start, well, well, you know, if God is all of this, why did he let that happen? If God is this, why did he allow that? Oh, goodness gracious. See, that's the whole thing. And one has really got nothing to do with the other. And by doing that, then you're actually just questioning the sovereignty of God. If it was meant for you to know, God would tell you. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, if you ask God, he will. But if you don't ask, just like I've shared with you before, you have not because you ask not. You don't have answers because you don't ask. You have this attitude. And this is the other thing that the devil gets in that in your mindset. He gets you not to ask God. Why? Because he's afraid that you're going to get an answer. And if you get the answer, then you're not going to listen to his yammering. That white noise interference that he tries to put in there to get you to focus on not on God. So brothers and sisters, his goal is to question the character of God. And he puts those thoughts in there and he drives it so that we believe that those thoughts are our own thoughts. You get these people to sit at a table and you're all gathered around and you're trying to talk about God and the Bible and the truth, but they don't want to hear but certain parts of the truth. You're trying to bend it. And I wonder... I have this thought process that's going on now, and I'm not going to use it as a comparative thing against him by any way, shape, or form, which is exactly what the devil's trying to do, but it's a thought process that's real and still. Um, that when we talk about certain scriptures that they don't want to talk about, even in a group discussion, and I find that they have to write a lot of things down because are they not reading this? But it doesn't matter what my purpose is or what my goal is or what I'm told to do is that I pray for them. We are to pray one for another, to exhort them. By no means do we condemn them, by no means do we tear them down, but we lift them up and pray one for another because we are of one body, we are of one mind, and we love the Lord thy God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our, uh, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our mind. Christ Jesus tells us that. He gives us four things. With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And it's important that that's, and there's actually several scriptures that point that out that are mindset. 
And I'm going to share with you this word impugn. Um, it's important because part of the definition of this, it, it's a, it comes from the French, impugnare, and also from the Latin impugnare. And it means to attack or to fight. And that's exactly what Satan does in his beguiling as he gets us to doubt God. He's attacking God. He's attacking God's character. He's attacking God's authority. He's questioning everything about God. Why? Because God kicked him out of heaven because he questioned it there. And he questioned it about that. And he tried to take and he wanted the throne of God for his own. And he got kicked out of heaven for it. So that really made him angry. Not only that, but he took a whole bunch of the angels because they were following him. And those are the demons that work for him now. And there's some pretty powerful ones. Be cautious, brothers and sisters. Never go up against them on your own. God provides us with guardians. He provides us with help. But the word impugn is to attack or to fight. And that's exactly what it does. And it comes from, the, from a Latin phrase, pugnus, or Greek, actually. And it means fist. And I was, when I was reading this or, or listening to my mentor, I was listening to this and I got to think, I said, oh my goodness gracious. We can actually find that in the Exodus when you go up and when you have the nation of Israel, which was exited Egypt by the leadership of Moses, who was directed by God and took them out of Egypt, took them out of their bondage because they were indeed in bondage, which the Pharisees completely forgot about their own history, which is exactly what people try to do today. They try to erase history or forget history which is part of truth because, I mean, it happened. They might not like it, but it happened. Now, these individuals tried to argue with Christ. They didn't want to hear the fact that they were in bondage or that they're in bondage. They didn't get what Christ was talking about, and they want to argue it, except the fact that they were in bondage. They were, in, they were enslaved. They were actually, in a good way, in Egypt first because when Joseph first brought them, they were living in the land of Goshen. They were brought under his protection, under the protection of Egypt, which had plenty and during the drought, and they were not doing so good. They were living in the land of Goshen and doing quite well. And then that Pharaoh died, and the next one came in, and the whisperings from his counselors talked him into chaining up the men of Israel and putting them to work in hard labor in building things for them, which they did. And they were going to work them quite literally to death. That was their goal. And I bring that up because you see in many places when you read through Exodus and it talks about when they were marching out and they were on that they didn't have water. They didn't have everything that they wanted. They had everything they needed, but they were lacking in certain things that they wanted to have ignoring the fact that God had provided everything that they needed to have. But they didn't like manna because it was heavenly bread and it wasn't, it wasn't heavy enough for them to dip into the different things that they had. 
So they complained about it. And many places through there, you see where they turned their back on God and they shook their fists at heaven. Oh my gosh, they shook their fists at heaven. The pugnas from the Greek. Shaking their fists. Wow. And then further we find in John 11, as John writes about the recounting of Lazarus, the friend of Christ, who had been asleep. Remember in the Bible it talks about our physical death here as being sleep. And they didn't get these things and his disciples were questioning his motivation and what was going on. They questioned it. And of course, the religious leaders that were there questioned Christ. His motivation and why he waited. And when they were questioning about him being asleep, and of course uh, you have that uh, when he was talking about it, um, I'm going to start in verse 12. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. How be it, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then Thomas, which is also called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And the reason he said that is because the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders um, at that time they were looking to stone him and at every opportunity that they had. And they knew that they were looking to do this. So Thomas said, hey, we're going to go. And if we have to, if they're going to kill him, we can die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave for four days. And Bethany was close to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs. Which is not a great distance. Uh, by walking, it's a pretty long distance. So it took him a little bit to get there. So, um, Hold on just one second. I'm uh, I am calculating here something because I want to I want to give you some So, well, that's not really very far, actually. 
sorry, I was trying to calculate uh, a little bit. So Bethany was actually um, about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem. Wasn't too far, but walking, it, it still took a while. But anyway, they arrived there and it was uh, about four days. Um, and many of the Jewish leaders, they came, the religious leaders and all that. And of course they had the, those I've shared with you before where they hire and they go and they bob and they weave and they weep and they cry and they scream and they play flutes and timbrels and all that stuff. Um, but Jesus came to glorify God and that was a purpose and but Satan drove the questioning. When Jesus tells us something, when God tells us something, when the Holy Spirit tells us something, and you have that questioning that goes on, this is what Satan drives, because he knows that we have a weak link. He knows that our minds will drive us to that point, that we are going to question, we are going to doubt. And we are going to fight against, we're going to rail against, and we're going to try to figure it out with our finite minds, which is exactly why the Bible tells us not to do that, but yet we do. We try to figure it out, and you got no business doing so. Because when you do it on your own, you can't. So we find in chapter 11 that Jesus said to Martha, Actually, there was a conversation that was taking place between Martha and Christ. Jesus asked her first. He actually told her. And she told Jesus that she knew that if he asked God, she knew that it would take place, that it would happen. And in verse 23, Jesus said, saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She was kind of having a misconception there and she knew, she understood. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life and he that believeth in me, though he were dead, shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She knew he was the Messiah. And yet those who were fighting against him and trying to stone him and kill him, they didn't want to believe that. So she went to get Mary and she went and told her privately, said that Jesus is here. Mary got up and right away she ran and left. And of course, some of the Jews that were there at the house were in that comforting mode and when they saw how fast she got up and left, she said they thought, of course, that something must be going on. So they got up 
and to follow her because they were thinking, okay, she's gone to the grave and she's going to cry over there. So as we're the criers, we got to go cry with her there. So they took off. But when she came to the house where Jesus fell, she fell at his feet. Oh, Lord, if you had only been here, you wouldn't have died. And this is where there's a recounting of Jesus kind of groaning with the Jews. They were, they didn't, they were missing the point. So I say, you know, when he groaned to himself, when he heard them and the comments that they were making, he wasn't making an open rebuke to them. They weren't the religious leaders in arguing, but they were the they were the ones who were. They were the paid criers. And they misunderstood things that were going on. Now, there were some there, of course, that said, you know, if he had been here, he could have. Why wasn't he? And they were questioning that was that uh, they were trying to impugn his authority. Question. Attack, assault his authority. And then he went with them to the grave and told them to take the stone away. And Martha, she's telling him, she goes, you know, he's been in there for four days. He's going to start to stink. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him, but... Some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees into council and said, What do we do for this man doeth many miracles? And if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there, brothers and sisters, and the raising of Lazarus is revealed the truth of the motivation of the Pharisees. It had nothing to do with Jesus Christ being blasphemous. Of course, we know he wasn't because he was speaking truth all the time. They just didn't want to hear it. But the truth be told now. The Pharisees were interested in their position and that they had, and that they were fearful that they wouldn't have that anymore. And that the Romans would take that away. Because you see, the Romans ensured that they had 
position, but they had authority. And if Christ got people to question, then the Romans would not be appreciative because they wouldn't actually have control anymore, and neither would the Pharisees. So they plotted all along, always. And you could actually kind of put that together in the other scriptures and find out, but therein lies the truth there. The raising of the dead also raises the truth. The bottom line, and as I mentioned earlier, the brass tacks, which is, which basically that old, that's an old adage. That's the fine line, bottom line, because brass tacks were used for decoration, very finely tapped in and very carefully put in place. So that was the bottom line, the detail work. The details of that is that they were going to lose authority that they believed that they had and they had right to, and that the Romans were going to not only take it away, but the people weren't going to let him keep it anymore. So they had to kill Jesus and anything or anyone that believed him. And that's what they aimed to do. Brothers and sisters, Pardon me. Rebuke the beguiling ways of the devil because he will get you to question God's authority. He will get you to question his anything that God has to do and it has to do with our bottom line, our soul, our very soul and being able to be delivered to heaven, accepted into heaven, and, oh, it angers the devil so much. It, and it angers Satan. He used to live there. That used to be his home. And God offers that to us, and all we have to do is believe. That's it. So Satan is going to work very hard on getting us not to believe and work very hard to question and doubt constantly. He constantly tries to get us to derail ourselves. And again, let me share this with you and reemphasize. The only one that can derail our train on course is ourselves. If we believe what the devil tells us, if we allow that to sink in, then we will derail our train. However, God can always write it back on the track. It can always be righted. Because God always forgives, God always loves, and the infallible truth, God is faithful. No matter what Satan wants you to believe, God is faithful. God is love. God is truth. And he will forgive. All you have to do is ask. Brothers and sisters, you're in my Prayers, I'm going out, my coming in daily. Be blessed.